The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's online program of the Commonwealth Club of California, Brittany Spears and the Conservatorship Con. Today's program is hosted by Grown Ups, one of the member-led forums at the Commonwealth Club. A big thanks to the forum chair, Denise Michaud, for her work to make today's program happen. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club and your moderator for today. Today we'll be talking about a subject very much in the news, conservatorships, also known as guardianships in many states, in large part due to the current controversy over the conservatorship of the pop star Britney Spears. Conservatorships are a legal construction allowing others to take care of those who are not able to take care of themselves. They're obtained and managed through the court system with the intention of protecting vulnerable individuals' health and financial well-being. But a lot of things can happen during the conservatorship process, and practices are being brought to light now, both in California and across the nation, on the part of attorneys, conservators, guardians, fiduciaries, family members, courts, and other actors that point to much-needed reforms. In particular, attention has recently focused on practices where attorneys, fiduciaries, conservators, and courts may collaborate in a predatory manner to place individuals in conservatorships, to access their assets, or for other self-serving reasons. Sometimes the conservatee or ward's health or well-being is damaged in the process, and deaths have even occurred. Sometimes conservatorships are necessary, where they are needed under current court practices, which lack effective judicial review of attorney fees, attorneys may exploit the process to take as much as possible of the person's or family's assets. We have four outstanding panelists to talk about this situation today, who I am pleased to introduce. Rick Black is the founder and executive director of the Center for State Administration Reform, or SEER. He is from Charlotte, North Carolina. Thomas Coleman is an attorney, executive director, and founder of the Spectrum Institute, which advocates for those with disabilities, and he's from Palm Springs, California. Lisa McCarley is an attorney from Los Angeles and the founder of Betty's Hope. Leanne Simmons is a human rights advocate, entertainment industry professional, and co-manager of Free Britney L.A., each of these experts is trying to improve the conservatorship and guardianship system in California and across the nation, and they're here to tell you about their important work. Each panelist will make a short presentation on their views about conservatorships and their work to reform the system, and then we will take questions from our audience. Please write your questions in the YouTube chat, and I will convey them to the panelists. So first, let's turn to Rick Black. Rick, over to you. 
Thanks, Dr. Duffy, and thanks for the opportunity to speak to the Commonwealth Club this morning and for the panelists joining me today. My wife and I were first exposed to guardianship or conservatorship in California eight years ago when her father was taken captive. And uh, through all the efforts that we undertook uh, through law enforcement, through local attorneys, we quickly recognized that the system that claimed to be there to protect the vulnerable and the disabled seniors as well uh, had one intent, and that was to continue the exploitation of a vulnerable adult. Uh, since that time, we, uh, we have investigated uh, over 4,000 cases since 2013. Uh, we were never able to protect my wife's father. It cost our family over a million dollars and the life of a dear loved one. Uh, but what we've learned over the last five years is that our experience was not unique. In fact, it was not isolated in any regard. Uh, our advocacy in the state of Nevada yielded the criminal conviction of 10 uh, professional guardians and attorneys who commonly use guardianship as a cover for criminal acts. And since founding SEER in 2018, we've learned that there are hotspots, so hotspot hot states, hotspot counties across the country where predatory attorneys routinely use guardianship and conservatorship as a weapon to exploit. SEER advocates seven days a week on behalf of anyone who comes through our website or through our hotline, uh, we tell people what the legal community refuses in most cases to even admit. Fortunately, today we have two attorneys joining us, Thomas Coleman and Lisa McCarley, who have made a career out of educating the public on what routinely happens within adult guardianship and conservatorship, a domain where predatory and sadly parasitic attorneys, those who want to create as many conservatorships and guardianships as possible, participate. And once they get the coveted court order to commence a guardianship or conservatorship, which is the only way anyone can be appointed into those roles is via a court order, they then have really complete authority to liquidate an estate for their own personal benefit. We've coined a phrase here at SEER, which describes better than 90% of the cases that we counsel. Isolate the victim, defame legitimate protectors, and liquidate the estate. Isolation of a vulnerable adult, whether it's by their own choice, living alone after a spouse has passed or someone who's lived alone for their entire lives, creates an opportunity for the nefarious. Distance to loved ones, distance to legitimate protectors is, is an ally of an exploiter. And it's, it's so very important that as our wealth grows and as we age, that we have documents in place that best protect us from interception of our estate. The two documents that we define as the most important documents that anyone can execute are the durable power of attorney with backup agents, a primary and a secondary, as well as the healthcare advance directive, again, with a primary and secondary agent. 
have those documents notarized and give them to your legitimate protectors who you trust implicitly will come to your aid in time of need and who understand sadly that the system that creates conservatorships in California is too often committed on furthering exploitation versus truly protecting the vulnerable. You might ask why. In California, it's estimated that $200 billion a year transfers generationally in the state. That is those who are elderly, who have their documents in place and intend to transfer their assets to heirs, whether it's a nonprofit or family or other recipients, the legal community understands how easy it is to intercept those funds through trust fraud, conservatorship fraud, and other probate fraud activities. Within the conservatorship industry, we don't know how many wards are in California. And to be a ward subject of a conservatorship, that affects anyone 18 or over. We see many disabled young adults whose parents are promoted to place them into guardianship as soon as they turn 18 by school districts, by hospitals, by the legal community and others. And yet the durable power of attorney and the healthcare advanced directive can easily serve to protect that class of individuals versus a guardianship. The point that we want the audience to know today is that once you're under the control of the courts, you and your loved ones control nothing. The judge controls everything. And generally, they are highly influenced by attorneys who practice before them every day. You're a stranger in that environment, and you need to understand that. Within conservatorship, we estimate, SEER, based on national numbers, that there's 140,000 wards in the state of California. And those wards would represent over $30 billion of estate value. Those, that is a profit center for the legal community within the state. Whether it's 70,000, which has been estimated by other groups, or 140,000, or anywhere in between, the sad part is the state of California has refused through the state bar and through the Supreme Court to force and force rather a census within the state so that there's total transparency on how many individuals lose their rights each year and are placed into a conservatorship. Throughout this hour, we're gonna hear from how things were missed in the Britney Spears case and many, many other cases within the state. And I hope that the listeners are enlightened to their risks to conservatorship in the state of California. Thank you, Dr. Duffy. Thank you, Rick. And please call me Gloria, everyone. Uh, I can't get that doctor off of the screen uh, for Zoom. But um, Rick, would you just mention, you know, you talk about profit center and so on. I think your background is so interesting that you essentially have left your very successful career to focus on this. Tell us just a little about your own background. Yeah, yeah I was an executive, an engineer by training, uh, but I was an executive with General Electric for 18 years. I left there and went into private industry, worked in private equity for about 15 years. Uh, in 2015, thanks to a successful career, 
um, and the odyssey that our own family was placed through in a guardianship, I chose to leave my desired profession uh, and work seven days a week as a free volunteer for families across the country. And then eventually my wife and I formed SEER in 2018. But uh, to your point, Gloria, we approach this from a financial perspective. Follow the money is the key to all of our investigations because that is the driver uh, in these cases, whether it's estate trafficking, another term that we've come up with over the years, or Medicaid fraud, Medi-Cal, Medicaid, the federal entitlements that flow into California for the disabled uh, presents a quite large uh, piggy bank, if you will, that people can draw from regardless of whether the vulnerable individual receives those treatments and therapies that are claimed. So uh, yeah, we're very much a follow the money organization. Now let's turn to Lisa McCarley. Tell us about yourself and your work. So good morning, my name is Lisa McCarley and I'm an attorney in Los Angeles County focusing primarily on probate conservatorships in Orange County and Los Angeles County. Um, I have been documenting dysfunctional conservatorships for the last decade because I spotted problems in the system. In fact, um, as a practicing attorney, I actually became so disenchanted with what was going on, I stopped being a court-appointed attorney. Um, I have a different perspective than the other panelists because I'm sort of an insider um, as well as someone, though, that is very critical of the system and what I'm seeing um, in the Britney Spears case, since that's the focus, was um, what I call incompetence and cronyism. And um, this is a feature where our judges have no training, no supervision, no accountability. In other communities, we call that qualified immunity, meaning that the system is broken because the legal community does not have a uh, valid checks and balances on the judges who are presiding over these cases. I mean, we literally have people that come out of careers of 30 years in the criminal courts, then 30 years um, perhaps in other areas of law, uh, they put on their black judicial robes and suddenly they are tasked with making life and death and very critical decisions that frankly, they have no business making. Um, and that's why most of the judges that we see here, Judge Penny, who's presently in the Brittany Spears case, something of an exception, but most of the judges are what I call short-term um, employees, they're temps. They come in for a few years, uh, they uh, get to a point where they're familiar enough with probate, and um, I think other panelists would agree, then they have a career, very lucrative careers in mediations. But the idea is that we have judicial officers that should not be presiding in these cases. Um, one of the facts that I point to is that on February 4th, 2008, which is when uh, Britney Spears was denied justice because the commissioner at the time, Reva Getz, um, would not allow, uh, uh, I believe, Adam Streisand, uh, a very well-known attorney in the probate community to represent Brittany. I mean, this failure um, on the commissioner's part was stunning, 
when she fired Adam Streisand, there's no statutory authority. That was the violation of Ms. Spears' constitutional rights to have counsel. Um, but from there, what I point to is that apparently not a single person in the courtroom in that moment knew that Britney Spears had the 100% unequivocal right to be represented by an attorney of her own choice. So then the question is, why did that happen? And that is because Judge Reva Getz was told to rely on the favorite crony, Sam Ingham. Um, I've known Sam Ingham most of my career since the late 1990s. I don't know that he's any different anymore, maybe a, a, a bit more egregious in what he did to Britney Spears, but this is normal. This is judges who don't know what they're doing, being allowed to be run around by attorneys that are perhaps equally incompetent and unscrupulous. But the judges are being told by the Judicial Council of California to rely on reports and statements made by these attorneys. So the attorneys are running the show and nobody is looking at what the law actually is in the state of California. Um, so these injustices, although um, now we look at it, we can't even believe what happened to Britney Spears. This is what is happening to seniors and other adults facing or in conservatorships every day. So um, my charity that I started because of cases like Britney Spears, Betty's Hope, is a, um, an attempt to get our legislators as well as our county um, supervisors to acknowledge that judges and lawyers are a terrible mix. Uh, judges should not be picking lawyers, paying lawyers, appointing lawyers. They should have nothing to do with who is appointed or um, uh, chosen to represent persons facing or in conservatorships. So to me, the fix is preventing people from being traumatized, exploited, and abused, as Britney Spears most definitely is being uh, subjected to. But it's because of this flaw where the judges are told to rely on their favorite probate uh, court-appointed counsel. Um, it's despicable. It is absolutely something that all of us need we need to contact our state legislators and tell them that they need to, to change this system. It is a systemic flaw. Anytime you see judges and lawyers participating in MCLE credits together, um, this, this is bad news. That's part of what I believe to be the grave um, injustice that was visited upon Britney Spears in particular. Thank you so much, Lisa. Now, Tom Coleman, let's turn to you. You're an attorney. You've been investigating the role of attorneys in particular in probate cases. So tell us about yourself, your organization, and what, what you're doing. Okay, very good. Thank you. Um, this program you're putting on today, I think, is a very um, great service for the public to become educated because people hear little tidbits about things and they know that there's something wrong, but rarely do they have a chance to really listen um, to some of the in-depth um, analyses by people who have experienced uh, these problems firsthand, either personally like Rick or in the trenches like Lisa um, and or in individual cases, you know, like Brittany's case and, and Leanne advocating, uh, you know, for her freedom. My uh, 
involvement has been in civil rights advocacy over, uh, gee, now it's going to be coming up um, five decades. <laughs> uh, so time flies for many causes and constituencies. And uh, around 2012, I was introduced to a first, uh, my first taste of uh, uh, abuses in conservatorship cases. And then uh, not representing anyone, but just as an outside civil rights attorney that people would come to and like, isn't there something wrong here or whatever? And after going through a few of those, I uh, decided to start doing auditing of cases and going into the court records. And what I found was a pattern in practice of civil rights violations. And uh, our organization, uh, mine is a Spectrum Institute, or a nonprofit uh, advocacy organization. And um, Basically, I take a kind of a bifocal approach to this. Uh, so one lens looks at the financial, but the other lens is looking at the civil rights violations. Because in many of these cases, the individuals uh, uh, wind up getting a public defender, if they get an attorney at all, to uh, defend them. They don't have significant assets. And so it's not so much the... Um, financial abuses that are going on, although there's a little bit of that too with respect to government benefits, but it's more somebody trying to control and take over their life, uh, maybe a young adult with developmental disabilities and someone doesn't want to uh, see them have sex or have relationships or they're, it can be benevolent uh, motives, but uh, whatever the motives, you know, um, stifling someone's freedom uh, in the name of, of, for benevolent reasons, are, is still stifling their freedom. So um, I've looked at this, and, you know, every year I would look at different part of the system. This is a very complex system, and the cases are very complex. There are many parts to the system, and there are many players in the case. And so finally, after all these years of continuing nonstop seven days a week uh, research, and analysis and publishing reports and so on. I I think I have a pretty good handle on the the players and so on. I'd like to take the uh, the viewers um, through a little bit of this with a screen share here. Um, so let me uh, get to the first window. Uh, and this is uh, I called it a matrix that I did of uh, what's involved in a conservatorship case. And I call the person a respondent. Uh, they're responding to a, uh, a petition that's been filed and need to respond and do something to defend their rights. Because if they do nothing, then you know the petitioner will just uh, win by default, so to speak. So you have a petitioner who files the case. The petitioner has an attorney in many cases, sometimes not. Um, and then you have a, a court investigator that may be involved. You may also have a guardian ad litem who's appointed. Um, you have capacity experts. You have uh, regional centers. Sometimes you have the Department of Developmental Services uh, who could be a petitioner. Uh, also petitioners can involve, besides family members, it can be involved the public guardian. If the public guardian's involved, then you have the county council representing the a public guardian. And then, of course, you have a judge. So you've got all of these various participants. And then you have, you know, the, the adult with the uh, who's the target of the proceeding 
who may or may not be given an attorney, who may show up with an attorney of their choice only to have the judge refuse to acknowledge them. And then in some cases, the judge does not appoint an attorney and the person has to go through the proceeding without anyone to defend them. Uh, The issues that are involved are constitutional rights, safe alternatives to uh, conservatorships that should be considered, um, the threat of major life decisions being taken away from the individual, and also the possibility that they could be given a conservator to control their life for the next several years or decades, depending on the age of the person, uh, who could neglect their rights or abuse them. So that's how complex the, the, that individual case is. The system itself is complex. So uh, I did a symposium presentation uh, a while back um, and uh, kind of gave people uh, an overview of what's involved in the system itself. You've either directly involved or indirectly You've got federal, state, and local government entities. You've got judicial, legislative, and executive branch officials. You've got professional associations um, and uh, disability rights organizations and so on. Uh, In terms of reform, every single one of these entities uh, has a role or a place in reforming the broken system. And believe me, all parts are broken. But if we make the wrong proposal to an agency, they'll just ignore it because they'll say it's not in my purview. So we have to target the proposals to the right entity. Now, the entities, and I'm not going to go in detail on this, but there are details, and I'd be happy to share it with anyone later if you um, you know, go to spectruminstitute.org and, and contact me. But you've got the Supreme Court, the Judicial Council, the Court of Appeal, the Superior Court, the legislature, the state bar, the Department of Developmental Services for people with developmental disabilities, the Department of Fair Employment and Housing is there, if uh, should be there, to protect people's civil rights if any of these participants violate their civil rights. Disability Rights California is funded $10 million or more per year and should be there to help people, but hasn't been uh, lifting a finger to do so. The county governments have a significant um, role. The supervisors choose which entity is going to provide uh, legal defense for indigents. The county council's involved um, and uh, other entities at the county level, like the public guardian. The U.S. government has uh, could be involved, more involved than it has been if it chose to, but so far has just been nibbling around the edges. The legal profession is could really be spearheading reform, uh, but isn't doing anything really. Other professions, medicine, psychology, and social work are all involved. So you see, there's this you know complex uh, system, and reform is a complex, multifaceted uh, approach. The I believe that the key to reform is through the uh, attorneys who are who should be advocating for these individuals uh, that first of all 
you've got to get the judges out of appointing attorneys. The judges should just be sitting there and whoever appears before them, they should have to deal with that person and they shouldn't have direct or indirect control over who gets appointed to an individual case. They shouldn't be paying the attorneys um, and they shouldn't be training or coaching the attorneys. That should be for somebody else. There's a, the, the attorney should have performance standards just like a doctor that's performing surgery doesn't just do what he or she feels or wants to. There are standards that guide them through the process. And there are consequences, legal and otherwise, if you fail to perform according to standards. These attorneys have no performance standards. The trainings are, are terrible. I just wrote a commentary last week about a recent training program that was just it omitted the important things that people need, the attorneys need to know, and it gave them misinformation on others. We sent a, a request to the California Supreme Court. There are about 10 organizations asking them to convene a work group on conservatorship right to counsel standards. That it's the, the Supreme Court is in charge of the state bar. The state bar reports to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court therefore promulgates uh, the rules of professional conduct. It also, therefore, is in charge of the discipline and uh, system and the complaint system for attorneys. Therefore, the buck stops with the Supreme Court. So we want the court to finally acknowledge its responsibility for allowing this mess to occur because the mess is mostly because the attorneys are basically trying to please the judges and to keep their in income stream going. And they're not trying to please their client or protect their rights. So this is pending recently. Finally, I'm, uh, the Spectrum Institute has a, uh, a funding and fees uh, uh, review project. And this is where, Gloria, thank you for agreeing to participate as an advisor, uh, since you've had some of your own experience in this area. Uh, with conservatorships. And uh, we're, we're taking, a, uh, again, a look at legal services as the key to reform. And the, for the last year, we've been looking at public funding uh, uh, of legal services, indigent legal defense services. Every county provides legal services for people without assets um, who have an attorney appointed. It could be a public defender department. In some counties, it could be a contract public defender, a law firm under contract with the county supervisors, or it could be the court-appointed uh, attorney system like Los Angeles, which is the worst of all. So we're going to be releasing our report uh, uh, on the public funding of legal services uh, in, uh, gee, about a week, September 7th. And uh, stay tuned, go to our website, uh, spectruminstitute.org, and you'll be able to review it. And basically what we found uh, in a nutshell is a system in disarray that's fragmented, that is providing deficient services and needs major reform. And so we have are targeting our, our um, uh, recommendations to the various entities that would have authority to uh, make sure that people who don't have assets, but who, whose civil rights are, are at risk in these proceedings, receive proper legal representation. The second part of it has to do with the fee gouging, the fee for all, the abusive fee system, if you want to call it a system, but it's ad hoc where individual judges can do whatever they want without guidance, without accountability, without appeals generally, by paying in cases where the people do have assets, 
Their assets might just be their home. Maybe they have a, you know, $300,000 in assets in the home. Well, believe me, that's going to be eaten up in attorney's fees, you know, in, in a wink. It's going to happen. And so the judges uh, are making the individuals pay not only for their court-appointed attorney, who may be actually advocating against them, and, and the individual, the senior, is having to pay the attorney to advocate against the senior, which is another uh, uh, abysmal situation. But they also ha are being forced to pay for the attorneys for the petitioners, sometimes the objectors, and also uh, the attorneys for the uh, temporary conservators, the attorneys for the permanent conservators, so that when you, one attorney in a case told me that uh, there was an, and I'll end with this, the um, um, Catherine Dubrow in her 80s had, you know, significant assets. In her case, she did not have a court-appointed attorney as an advocacy attorney, and yet at one point out of her estate, she was being ordered to pay five attorneys, not her own, because she wasn't even given one. So this whole, we will be working for the next year or more on the uh, fee abuse situation and issuing a report on that. So I, again, encourage people, if you go to our website at spectruminstitute.org, you can sign up to get on our, our uh, mailing list and we'll send you information when we have reports and other things. But uh, the system is badly broken. Every part of it is broken. No one is funding conservatorship reform. It's people like us who are doing this as volunteers. That's why it's taking so long. If some foundation, you know, MacArthur Foundation, the Ford Foundation, were to donate, you know, a, a chunk of money, and if the money were targeted on cleaning up this attorney mess, we could speed up and accelerate uh, the reform process. So thank you for your attention and, and Gloria for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. And thank you for such a cogent uh, program of research and examination and presentation. I love your term fee for all that uh, characterizes it well. Last but not least, uh, Leanne Simmons. Um, Lisa touched on the Britney Spears case. I know you've been extremely involved in that case and advocate, advocate, advocating for Britney Spears. So please tell us about yourself and what you're doing. Sure. Well, first, I would like to thank the Commonwealth Club for having this program because it's so important that we're educating the public about these issues. And I think that in Brittany's case in particular, the uh, lack of awareness about this type of thing has what is what ha has allowed it to continue for 13, going on 14 years now. Um, so I myself started as just a Britney Spears fan who was kind of concerned about the seemingly really microscopic control over her day-to-day -day life. And the fact that she was working for 13 years, you know, doing tours, bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars, seemingly able to do so, yet under this conservatorship that had taken away all of her rights to make her own decisions. And we were just fans dabbling in the law. We didn't know too much. We just knew something felt off. Um, and in 2019, there was a whistleblower, a paralegal who was familiar with Britney's case, who sort of confirmed a lot of our concerns and the fact that Brittany at that time was allegedly being held against her will in a facility. And 
um, had been mistreated for most of her conservatorship. And that's when the, the ball started rolling. Um, and for the last two years, we have been fortunate to team up with other advocates and activists who've been working on this for many years, decades. And we realized that this is so much bigger than just Britney. This is systemic. This is, it involves cronyism and just the lack of oversight in our systems. These judges and, and lawyers are able to sort of do whatever they please. And there isn't a lot of checks and balances. Nothing's, there's no oversight. And that's a huge part of what I think needs to be implemented in this situation. Because as Tom had mentioned, this is a very complex system. There are all these puzzle pieces. And I think it's overwhelming to the average person. It's overwhelming to those in the legal community, even. It's just a very um, intricate system. So we need to simplify it and we need to make sure that there is oversight into it. Um, in Brittany's case in particular, I think could be a really great catalyst for this reform. And I, I think it's wonderful that the narrative is happening now. People are talking about conservatorships. People who had never heard the term before are now aware of, of what it is. So yes, Brittany is theoretically very rich. Uh, she's young and, and able-bodied from what we can tell and, and a young white woman. And it's easy to dismiss that and think there are bigger issues out there. She's got money. She's fine. But when you look at it, she doesn't have control of her money. So how much is that fortune worth when she doesn't have a say in how it's spent? And I think that that's important to recognize. And another thing that Tom had said is you could just have a home that might have some assets in it. You don't have to have hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. These predators look for even the smallest things. And, you know, you'd be surprised what people will do for small sums of money. So it's important as, you know, I, as a fan with a, a mom, aging grandparents, friends, uh, myself, it, this is a threat to all of us. This system is set up to take control over anyone and oftentimes over kind of false accusations of disability or ineptitude that, that aren't even true. So we should be very aware of this and we should fight as we're moving forward because the baby boomers are aging up and we're all getting older. And this is a predatory system that tends to go after those who are elderly and, and also those who are disabled. So I am very honored to be a part of the Free Britney movement, which has kind of evolved into this kind of passion for the rights of conservatees and, and reforming the system because it is so much bigger than just Brittany, who, you know, we want her to be able to go have children or go to Starbucks or, you know, be able to institute her, her constitutional rights, of course. But beyond that, it is, again, coming back to that systemic problem that uh, we sort of opened a can of worms as a fan base. And I think the majority of us are really grateful to have teamed up with other advocates. And um, I firmly believe Brittany will be free and very soon, but the work is not done at that point you know, we need to take this further and continue to reform these laws and make sure that this sort of thing is not happening in the future. Thank you so much, Leanne, and thanks for your work and advocacy. Um, just um, please, uh, audience members, please uh, type your questions in the chat. Uh, I will ask those, but until we get some, I will ask uh, you all some other questions. Um, Brittany's, the Britney Spears case has um, upscaled uh, visibility of this issue. Um, it does not typical of all cases, obviously. Uh, but just let's talk about that case for a second, since it is so visible right now. What would an appropriate situation look like for Britney Spears? 
what 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 would be a humane, uh, appropriate, uh, supportive situation for her? Well, I, I'm going to go ahead. I mean, I am adamantly against the maintain maintaining this conservatorship for a number of reasons. I am convinced that Ms. Spears never qualified for a probate conservatorship. A probate conservatorship is only appropriate when someone is truly unable to um, make decisions and take care of their own needs and very basic food, clothing, and shelter. It does not require someone to be sophisticated as a business manager. It doesn't actually require them to be shrewd or business savvy whatsoever. Um, what happened to Britney Spears, let's be very clear, was a violation of her constitutional rights. Ms. Spears, at this point, should be free of the conservatorship. She should have people that she has a point that she have. Uh, vetted and appointed to help her with her medical decision-making as well as her financial decision-making. And as Rick properly pointed out, there is no reason that I can see why this could not be managed with a durable power of attorney, healthcare directive, and other estate planning documents. Um, she has a living trust. Her assets should be in the living trust. She should have competent fiduciaries around her. She does not need a probate conservatorship, never has. Um, I'm appalled at what's going on. I'm appalled that the judges have allowed this to uh, be maintained, especially in light of her statements on June 23rd. So right now, in my viewpoint as an attorney, I've done this for over 25 years. Ms. Spears should be free of this conservatorship. She does not need the protection of the court. In fact, I would argue that she needs to be protected from the Los Angeles County Probate Court. Anyone else? <laughs> no, I agree with you on that. I think that that she's been abused in the conservatorship. What what would the problem be to terminate the case, see what happens? And if a new situation arose where there needed to be some intervention, um, then you could always take a fresh look at it. But give her a chance. Yeah, I, I look at the numbers. Uh, we estimate looking at what has been submitted to the court that the attorneys have been paid over $20 million from her estate since this guardianship conservatorship, I'm sorry, was begun in 2008. Uh, at any one time, and I've counted them in the past, there were at least a dozen attorneys who were feeding off of her estate. And many of them, maybe even all of them, knew that she didn't qualify for conservatorship when it started. And she was actively arguing to end it from as early as 2010. So there's more than a decade here of more than a dozen attorneys who were extremely well paid, who ignored Brittany unilaterally for the 13 years. The point that I also wanna make is, Brittany is unique in that she's young, vibrant, quite lucid. In our government, you're allowed to make mistakes. We're all given free will and making mistakes is part of growing up. It's part of being human. Yet, in this case, those couple of issues at a time which was very, very high stress for Britney Spears back in 2008, two young children going through a divorce, 
husband isolating the children from her and paparazzi all over her, we're going to use that moment in time to judge this woman for 13 years. Most wards don't have their abilities to fight back. Many wards are targeted, groomed, thrown into conservatorships when they've, due to illness or injury or dementia, have lost their ability to fight back. And that's what should alarm the public that here's a woman who's quite vibrant, quite articulate, didn't qualify 13 years ago, and yet she still finds herself in one of these. So um, some questions are starting to come in, and if I look down, they're coming in on my watch. So um, I will uh, uh, put those in front of you in just a second. Um, Rick, I want to go back to some of your early comments. Uh, you talked about winning some convictions in Nevada. Can you tell us a little bit about those cases, what was going on, and when you've sort of, you and others have pushed some of these issues, uh, what, what kind of cases, what were the outcomes? Yeah. Nevada, to date, is the only state where the attorney general of the state launched an investigation, criminal investigation, based on mountains of evidence that my wife and I and other activists presented to him back in 2014, right after he was elected. This was Adam Laxalt was newly elected to the Nevada attorney general's office. Uh, he was alarmed by the evidence that we presented and launched a statewide investigation. The conservatorship guardianship system, sadly, back to the dysfunction that's been described, is a haven for narcissists and sociopaths. It's an environment where lying is rewarded. And any litigator, and I, and I want to make the, the, the you know, the dysfunction, I want to define it more critically for your audience. Attorneys are licensed by the state bar. You can, you can get a law degree, but then you have to be licensed by the state bar in every state to practice. But then there's this unique group called litigators and litigators make their money in a courtroom. And in a courtroom, they don't take an oath. They don't have to tell the truth. And in an equity courtroom where billions of dollars are at stake, they can lie routinely. And what the attorney general of Nevada uncovered with his investigation and with the help of ourselves was they're statutorily required to submit an accurate inventory when a guardian conservatorship commences. They weren't doing that. They are statutorily required to define where each and every penny is spent and who it's given to every year. They weren't doing that. In Nevada, less than 4% of all guardianship cases that were reviewed were statutorily, required, uh, uh, statutorily compliant. And within that, there was an immense amount of criminal activity that sadly was being protected by this court. So, so that was how that investigation began. It was following the money. It was showing the statutory non-compliance and then getting those bank statements to show that the money had been misappropriated. There's only two other states that have taken action on this, and they were actually done by the federal government, which is also extremely alarming. California has never undertaken a criminal investigation at the county or state level or federal level. 
In New Mexico, the FBI came in because six professional conservators had ripped off over a thousand people, and those six executives were sent to prison in 2020 and 21. But again, it took the FBI, it took the Department of Justice to combat this from a criminal perspective. And the only other state where we're seeing a prosecution underway is the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, where it's a recognized hotspot for estate trafficking within the professional guardianship environment. Um, we do have a woman there, actually five conspirators, no attorneys involved, but the, uh, the DOJ has 850 some counts on her and she's currently going through criminal prosecution. The, the federal government is starting to understand the dysfunction of the system and the ability for predatory attorneys to use it to violate civil rights of the individuals as well as to conduct criminal activity. But uh, we've got 3,500 counties in the U.S. and a lot of law enforcement that continues to ignore these crimes. So um, some questions coming in from our online audience. Um, does a contested conservatorship ever cost less than $200,000 to litigate? I'm concerned that there is an estate size for which only informal solutions are available, and it's a fool's errand to challenge control of, say, a relative who is exploiting a vulnerable senior. Comments? Well, from what I've seen, there first of all, there aren't that many contested hearings that occur, number one. There just seems to be um, a lot of settlements, and uh, and a lot of settlements occur because the estate would be eaten, eaten up uh, in contested hearings or trials or whatever. I mean, theoretically, the individuals have a right to a jury trial, and I examined the records, uh, the data from L.A. County, and over uh, a period of uh, 12 years, where 24,000 probate conservatorship cases were processed, there were two jury trials. So uh, uh, I think that that the, the real problem is occurring more with the settlements and the back scratching of everybody uh, to get the, the conservatorship in place. And, you know, then afterwards there can still be other um uh, objections and things that eat up the estate. But uh, I think the real problem is just the, the um, collusion uh, uh, more so than the uh, uh, contesting. Yeah, I, I agree with Tom's comment on the collusion because we see it across the board. And, and we use the term parasitic as well as predatory attorneys because the parasitic attorneys just go along for the ride. They, they really have no interest in fighting for the rights of the innocent party or the family desperately trying to free a loved one from a fraudulent conservatorship. Uh, but I, I put a little different swing on it than Tom did, although everything Tom said is accurate. Um, it's almost impossible for the average family to free a loved one from a contested conservatorship. Number one, the entire estate is taken over with the signing of the first order, which is usually done as a, quote, emergency, even though it's not. But at that, at that point, the attorneys and the court control the estate. 
So now you're trying to protect a loved one with, let's say you're a single daughter, which women are highly targeted in this environment. You're, you've got your own little retirement that you're working on. You're 55, 60 years old. Your mother, who's 80, 85, 90, who's lost her complete estate, and now you've got to pony up $50,000, and that's the minimum number to get an attorney to take your case and fight zealously on your behalf. The issue that we see nationwide is most attorneys won't take these cases because they know suing a federal a, a fellow attorney or challenging a judge who is running a guardianship conservatorship mill is is not good for um, for 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 job security. We have many attorneys across the country who've been disbarred because a judge got angry that they were being challenged in what was clearly a trust fraud or conservatorship fraud arrangement, and they want they knew that the bar would challenge discipline, potentially disbar the opposing attorney. And, and that's why those complaints were made. So we've got issues here with the entire system running a propaganda campaign to ensure the public continues to be duped on the recognized issues and continue to allow themselves to be open to the exploitation that occurs with it. Your, your questioner is right on. You've got to have a lot of money to contest a fraudulent conservatorship. And that's why these problems grow, because the sheer act when the estate is taken over really minimizes how many people can fight it. Gloria, I'd like to give a, a shout out to uh, just a second here to the uh, the folks in Nevada because of the reform that was done there. The Legal Aid Center of Southern um, Nevada, uh, th they are funded without taxpayer money. They represent all people who don't have their own attorney who are targeted by the guardianships there. Uh, they do not charge a fee to anybody, even if the person has a million dollar estate, they're getting free legal services. They have a dedicated team of 14 attorneys who are well-trained with performance standards, who push back. And unlike California that has almost no petitions that are dismissed, uh, last year, they got 25% of the petitions dismissed in favor of less restrictive alternatives, or they weren't, nothing was needed at all. And 25% of their caseload last year were terminations. And they send out, those that are put into a guardianship, they send out a staff member not an attorney, but a qualified staff member every six months to meet with the individual. So uh, there is a ray of hope uh, 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 that, you know, it's not a perfect system and they're not perfect, but they're head and shoulders above everybody else. So, you know, I just want to let people know that that this all is not hopeless. There are there's a new emerging model that we can uh, consider. Let, let me, I think playing off of the question, though, of the last person, um, we, we've seen some other high-profile cases, uh, Brooke Astor and uh, the case of You Get Clark. I actually had a program last year with Ian Clark Devine, uh, her, ne her nephew. These are cases of very wealthy individuals who were being abused or exploited. Uh, you get Clark, uh, you probably know the story. It was uh, in the New York Times, and there was a book about it. 
Uh, she ended up at a very elderly age, uh, an heiress, silver heiress, actually, from uh, family wealth from Nevada, actually, uh, ended up living in a hospital in, the hos- in New York, and the hospital kept accessing her for millions and millions of dollars of contributions to the hospital as a condition of continuing to have her live there full time and so on. Are there cases where guardianships or conservatorships are needed, uh, you know, when there's abuse going on? Because that's part of the reason is to, uh, for these forms, is to try to protect vulnerable individuals against genuine abuse. And then uh, what kind of uh, protections or what about this issue of the high cost? If, if, are there alternatives if somebody is being abused? Uh, to protecting them? What, what we, uh, I'll, I'll just quickly say, you know, again, we've, we've supported several thousand contested cases since we started our work broadly in 2014. Uh, early intervention is critical. When you smell a rat, you got to start appealing because you've got to get this case out of the probate court or the equity court where the conservatorship or guardianship was inappropriately commenced. So the very first order is the most critical order to be appealed. Secondly, you've you've got to take action because usually the fraud or breach of fiduciary duty is rather easy to define in in certainly a trust case, Uh, but where you've got joint account holders, legitimate protectors that were a part of that person's life for, you know, the transition from being fully lucid to being vulnerable. Um, So federal breach of fiduciary duty suits and state breach of fiduciary duty suits are, are a less expensive route, although very expensive, but more effective in exposing the true predators who normally use trust fraud, conservatorship fraud to exploit the vulnerable. One of our audience members, sorry. The attorney's on the phone. I'm given practical experience, but I'd love to hear from Lisa or Tom on that point. Any other comments uh, on that issue? What about when there's a genuine need to protect somebody from abuse? And those are the cases um, that I hope that I handle. Um, In other words, there are reasons to have conservatorships. There are reasons to have guardianships. Um, What I... I'm finding is that, unfortunately, the probate courts, because they're so badly uh, underfunded, their probate investigators are not well-trained, they're not doing a good job. I would actually say that you're better off not being a conservatee um, in some instances, but there have been instances, there have been occasions where we have been able to get the legitimate family member, the protector, in place to protect mom, dad, from an infiltrator, from an outsider, someone that would use um, harm, undue influence, and so forth. So, yes, of course, there are times. And also, a lot of times, conservatorships and guardianships are needed when people have failed to do any type of estate planning. I mean, you'd be very surprised at statistically how many people, all of the conservatorships that I have um, started for family members over the last several months 
all of them have been the result of a failure to plan. So, as you know, people say if you fail to plan, you're planning for failure. Unfortunately, it is still very hard to get people to come into an attorney's office and do their estate planning early and often. But there have been times we have been able to recover assets um, and mostly separate elders and adults with developmental disabilities. But it's, you know, it's very difficult in this environment where everything is so slow and so difficult and um, very expensive. And mostly because, again, the judges don't recognize the distinction and these subtle cases between what a person being unduly influenced uh, versus their own free will. Um, so it's a, it's still a challenge, but we do need to pay more attention to the training, supervision, and accountability of all people in the courtroom. Question from the audience. Aren't there court-appointed investigators that are required to meet with the conservatee on an annual basis to obtain their input on whether they want to continue with being conserved? Yeah, that's it's, uh, theoretically, that's the case, but... I'll give an example. Several years ago, when we had a financial crisis, uh, the first these these investigators are in the court's budget. They're paid for right out of the superior court budget. So when the superior court wants to save money, what does it do? Uh, it finds places to cut. So they they were understaffed by about fifty percent. They were backlogged for several years. Uh, and to really save money, the judges uh, stopped appointing court investigators in the cases involving adults with developmental disabilities and told the court-appointed attorneys to serve that function. In other words, don't be the person's advocate, be the eyes and ears of the court. So uh, again, the problem isn't so much what's in the statute books, theoretically, it's the failure to implement the law as it was intended and the fact that there's no consequence because there are virtually never any appeals. So the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal don't get to weigh in and say, this is wrong. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. So the judges know and the attorneys know that they're untouchable because there's no accountability. So, yes, theoretically, that those protections are there but uh, they're pretty meaningless. And you can satisfy it by spending probably five minutes with the person uh, if you did go out. And let me just add to that. And in Britney Spears' case in particular, um, apparently there were probate investigators that went out and made reports that she was unhappy with the conservatorship and wanted her father out. But what had happened already is that there was this codependent financial arrangement and, you know, maybe not even they probably weren't even aware, but they had a court appointed attorney assigned um, or allowed to receive $10,000 a week. So the person that the court relied upon to determine what was going, what is appropriate in this case, had absolutely no incentive to abide by any of the recommendations by his client or the probate investigator. In fact, um, the New York Times did an amazing article a few months ago where they talked, to, they got, they apparently somebody leaked some of the probate investigators' reports uh, to the New York Times, and it was revealed that Brittany had been fighting and trying to get her attorney to terminate the conservatorship or at least make a significant change. And that attorney was incentivized to ignore her because he was receiving $10,000 a week and 
consistent with what I'm trying to explain to the world is that the judges do what the court appointed attorneys tell them to do because literally the Judicial Council of California is telling them to follow those recommendations. It's on the website. So it's like, as Tom says, this is a huge mess all the way to the top. So um, that's your, the point is, yes, there are probate investigators, but in these cases where there's a court-appointed attorney who has a vested interest in maintaining status quo, um, it re- these reports are routinely ignored. So I feel like we've just scratched the surface, and yet we're really at the end of our hour. I just heard the uh, clock on the ferry building here on the Embarcadero in San Francisco chime 1030. Um, I'd like to do a very quick lightning round, and I'd like to ask each of you if there's one thing you could do that you should th- think should happen, one practical thing to change uh, and, and improve this conservatorship system, what would it be? So, Rick, I know you're always ready with an answer. So, Yeah, it would be to implement the Federal Free Act, which is currently in committee, which gives contested cases an exit ramp uh, to go to a federal court and have both the, the ward, focuses on the ward, have their constitutional rights upheld, and a full de novo review of whether the conservatorship was appropriate, and if it was, who should be the conservator of that individual. Without federal oversight, um, these problems are only going to continue to grow. Lisa? Absolutely separate judges, lawyers, and money. Um, Tom also articulated the same plan, but I did actually study the model in Las Vegas where they funded an entirely different group of lawyers that are separate from judges. Other counties do that. That should be um, in California. That should be mandatory. And I think that would start settling a lot of these problems where judges no longer are basically assigning their favorites to cases and then following directions from those lawyers. Leanne, let's go to you. Um, Yes, definitely going off of what Lisa said, I think way too many conflicts of interest are being allowed to continue. And, you know, how is someone who is incentivized to keep a conservatorship going going to advocate to end it? Um, It gets messy there, obviously. And I think that it it comes down to oversight. When there's a single judge who is relying on her, you know, favorite court-appointed attorney, that single person has way too much power over the ward's estate and life. So I do think um, it needs to be overseen at a higher level, um, potentially federally, because the states kind of just do what they want at this point, and and we need more control over um, these systems. Okay, I um, I agree with everything that everyone said. I think um, take something that interests you personally and you feel that you can do. For example, a letter to your state legislator saying that you support SB 724 by Senator Ben Allen, uh, it creates 
modest but necessary reforms to the uh, court-appointed attorney system. So that's a very specific, doable act. The other, if you're in L.A. County, for example, Lisa and I are going to be working together and trying to get the L.A. County Board of Supervisors to stop throwing money at the court to allow them to operate this court-appointed attorney system and instead to consider the Nevada-style attorney system. So keep in touch with us. Sign up, again, for our newsletter at spectruminstitute.org. It's a simple thing you can do. And then as you get a newsletter or get some information from us, something will uh, uh, pique your interest. Follow up on that because that follow your passion. And I'm going to throw one on the table from some conversations I've had actually suggested by my district attorney in Santa Clara County here in California, which is that um, counties have local rules of court. And um, in Santa Clara County, they've instituted a local rule that fee petitions by attorneys have to be closely examined by judges to make sure that the fees are actually in the interest of the protected person of their and their estate. And uh, there are some criteria, obviously, for that. Uh, I'd love. I think that uh, seeing that as a statewide standard in California and elsewhere would be great because at least then judges would be obligated to examine whether all of these this fee for all, uh, you know, has inbuilt interests as you were talking about, Lisa. Uh, whether it's actually doing something for the person who's in the conservatorship or the guardianship. I think all of you um, have pointed to what is really a civil rights issue in the U.S., a human rights issue. Uh, We don't usually think of this area as among civil and human rights, but it is. It fits that criterion. It is people who need to be protected from abuse, uh, who need to be... um, a system that needs to be reformed uh, so that there isn't uh, a sort of a bias and abusive uh, um, uh, quality to it. So thank you all for uh, uplifting and pointing to this issue, which I think will receive a lot more attention. Uh, Perhaps we will come back for part two of this panel, uh, talk more about solutions because we really have just barely scratched the surface. So I'd like to thank each of you, Rick Black, Tom Coleman, Lisa McCarley, Leanne Simmons, for all that you're doing, for being with us here today, wishing you well in your work, Uh, thanking our online audience who did provide a number of very good questions. And now uh, this is Gloria Duffy uh, saying that this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. Thank you all. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.